stand in the presence of God's Word. The same night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the Jabbok, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with the man. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall be called Israel. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob's been gone 20 years. 20 years before, he and his mother had plotted against the older brother Esau and the almost blind elderly father Isaac. Jacob ran 400 miles north to Haran, from whence his mother had come, and had found his uncle, his mother's brother, and had worked for him seven years in order to be allowed to marry the younger of Laban's two daughters, Rachel. But on the wedding night, instead of Rachel's being presented in the wedding tent, it was the older daughter, Leah. Jacob was very upset, and his uncle said, well, you can have the other one too if you'll do right by this one for a week and if you promise to work seven more years after you get the younger one. Jacob said he would do that. So seven years, and then Leah and Rachel, seven more years, and then six after that. Now, Jacob was really busy trying to make sons during this time. You recall that not only was Leah bearing sons, six of them, but also Rachel's maid, two, Leah's maid, two, and then Rachel had one. Eleven little boys under twelve. That's what the Bible says. So Jacob, in the middle of the night, decides it's time to go home. God's telling him, come home. And he starts out with two wives, two maids, eleven little boys, and everything he's accumulated in 20 years. And he hears, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. Jacob's heart sank. Wow. How can he soften up Esau a little bit? Well, maybe if I send out ahead of me 220 sheep, 220 goats, 50 cattle, 30 camels, 30 donkeys. Yes, that's it. And he sent them toward Esau. He, these women, all these little boys, came to the place where the Jabbok runs into the Jordan. Comes out of what is modern-day country of Jordan, hits the Jordan River. It's a steep little ravine right there. 20 miles north of Jericho, north of the Dead Sea, where the Jordan empties. They camp that night. Jacob cannot sleep. So he gets up and moves these women and 11 little boys across the Jabbok. 
scholars say it would have been a dangerous crossing in the middle of the day, almost impossible in the middle of the night, but that's what happens. And as soon as he gets them all settled down again, a man, this story says, refers to him as a man two or three times, but right at the end of the story starts calling this other one El, Elohim, the word we know for God. God comes to him in some kind of human form, and they struggle all night. The problem, Esau. Esau, what will he do with 400 men? Number one, Rabbi Gunter Plout says, it's time for Jacob to deal with Esau. But before he deals with Esau, he will deal with the Lord. Sean Thea Moore is a United Church of Christ minister in Shaker Heights, Ohio. She has written recently that she has two little ones moving from elementary into middle school who want to see all the summer movies that are made for 12- and 13-year-old boys, all these superheroes from the comic books. She said, we saw the most recent one the other day, and I'm driving us home afterward. And the little boy says to his sister, if you could have any superpower in the world, what would you like to have? And Shanthea says the daughter is a little shy at her age, and so she said, invisibility. She would like to be invisible. And the little boy says, no, you need to fly. That's what I want. If I could just fly, that would be the greatest thing. Hey, Mom, how about you? And Shanthea said, sorry, but I was already thinking, sermon for Sunday, Jacob at the Jabbok. And I said, perseverance. Perseverance. As Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who will be coming to us next February, has written in his commentary, God was saying to Jacob, let's see what happens to you when the going really gets rough. Number two, this is a very old story. One of the great German theologians of last century, Dr. Gerhard von Rod, who wrote one of the definitive commentaries on Genesis, has said, there's no question this story is J. And if you recall, there are four well-identified sources in the Torah, the oldest of them, J, the Yahvist, the one who calls God all the time, Yahweh. So here he's, he's helping you understand, well, this is sort of God in man form, sort of man in God form that Jacob's not recognizing at first. But it is the one whom Moses would meet years later at the burning bush, that one. It's a very old story, probably not written down as we have it until the time of King Solomon, but told for hundreds of years around campfires. And during those years, people thought there were strange things that moved around in the night. You struggled with them sometimes and unable to sleep. If you could hold on to one of them until almost daybreak, that spirit would become more and more frantic. You could get almost anything you wanted. And so Jacob says, bless me. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And this one asks, what's your name? Remember his name? It means the grabber. 
the one born grabbing onto the heel of his brother, the one who grabbed his brother's birthright, the one who grabbed the blessing from his father, the one who's grabbed sheep and goats and camels from his stepfather, and with wives and maids and all these little boys, started heading home 400 miles south. I'm the grabber. How would you like to be Israel? A.R. Gurney has written a play called Ancestral Voices. It's a story about a family in upstate New York. They are Anglo-Saxon Protestant white folks. They've come from Western Europe three generations before. They've come to this country looking for a better way. The couple that came hoped they could make a life better for their children than they'd ever had, and even better for their grandchildren. They were successful. They worked hard, sunrise to sunset. But the play is about the third generation, who have the money, but not the drive. There are a couple of lines in the play that I like. One says, but what is our usefulness. Haven't we sort of outgrown our usefulness? And a little later, one of the other characters says, you know there's a hole in every family somewhere. There's a hole in every family somewhere. But how would you like to be Israel? How would you like to fix that hole in your family? How would you like for that hole in your life to be fixed? Okay? Number three. Jacob then says, Well, tell me your name. And God asks, Why do you ask my name? God doesn't give him the name. It will be 400 years later that Moses at a burning bush will say, if I'm going to face down Pharaoh, i got to have a name. And God said, okay, Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am. Not to Jacob. Follow Dr. Brueggemann again. He said, remember the problem is Esau coming with 400 men. So when Jacob asked for the name, what is he really asking for? A club. A club for Esau. You can't do anything to me. I know the name. It is not granted. Instead, he gets a dislocated hip. And Dr. Brueggemann said, what you have is a cripple with a blessing. A cripple with a blessing that already this ancient storyteller has understood from God that this community of faith is going to find strength in weakness. Weakness in strength. Which will eventually lead us Gentiles, Dr. Brueggemann says, to Jesus of Nazareth. Weakness in strength, strength in weakness. He's not going to ride the black stallion, he's going to ride the bull. Carolyn McKinstry, 
was a little black child growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, 1962. She said Birmingham eventually became known as Bombingham at that point. Terrible racial conflict in Alabama in the early 1960s. She said my mother and father knew about the people who would like to harm us. They told us exactly where we could be and where we were not to be. My father was constantly telling my older brother to watch over me, watch over me. The one place we felt safe was our church. I remember when I was 13, she said, and I was baptized, and as I was being raised up out of the waters at the 16th Street Baptist Church, I saw the stained glass picture of Jesus, and he was smiling. I was his daughter. I'd come home. He was happy. And then one day, I'm 24. I'm a college graduate. I'm married to a man who loves me, and I'm depressed. I'm depressed. And finally, one night, my husband says, I've been calling around. I've found a psychologist I want you to see. She said, I'd never known anybody in my whole life who had been to a psychologist. But I knew I had a problem, and he seemed to be looking for a way to get me help. The next day, I kept that appointment. The psychologist talked to me a little, mostly listened, and finally said, I believe there's a dirt, deep, deep hurt in your heart that you haven't really dealt with. Can you help me know what that is? And Carolyn said, my mind raced back the year after I was baptized. It was youth day at our church. I was in the bathroom with my four best friends. We were primping in front of the mirror. It was youth day. We were about to be in front of all the congregation when suddenly I remembered, oh, no, today I'm supposed to pick up all the envelopes from all the Sunday school classes, and I rushed out of the bathroom, ran up the stairs, started down the hall. Boom! The whole building shook. I was knocked to the floor. Somebody screamed, it's a bomb, get out, it's a bomb, get out. And I ran, she said. I got out into the street. It was bedlam out there, but I heard my father calling my name. I ran over to him. He threw his arms around me. We all got in the car and started home. But as we listened to the radio, it turned out that bomb had been just outside the wall of that bathroom, and all four of my best friends were killed. All of them killed. But my family thought we must not show our enemies that we are weak. Stiff upper lip, you know, hold up your chin, move on, stoicism. So nobody ever asked me, Carolyn, how do you feel? Carolyn, how are you dealing with your hurt? How deep is your pain? Never. The psychologist said, I want to help you, Carolyn. Let me help you. One thing, he sent me home to look in some favorite things from that period. There was my Bible, the Bible I was given the day I was baptized. And when I opened it after all those years, there was a program there, the Sunday morning bulletin from that Sunday, September 15, 1963. 
And when I opened the bulletin, I saw that our preacher was about to preach at 11 o'clock from one of the seven last words of Christ. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The strength in weakness, the weakness in strength. A cripple with a blessing. Number four. The sun rose, and Jacob, without the name, limped toward his brother. Limped toward his brother. Remember many years ago when our seminary at SMU asked me if I would mentor an intern from the seminary. If we as a congregation, and I in particular, would spend 12 months mentoring one of their students, had been through four years of undergraduate work by that time, two years of graduate work, would spend one whole year with us and then go back for that eighth year at the seminary. I agreed to do that. And they sent us a succession of 20. 20 years we went through that. The first few were young men, and then we started having more and more women. One of them was assigned this passage to preach. And she had been taught, if there's something in the passage you don't understand, you've got more work to do. And she said, I had never seen a wrestling match in my life. So she started trying to find out something about wrestling. She knew there was something on television about wrestling. She wanted no part of that. So she started asking people, how do you find out about wrestling? And one of our members said, you want to know about wrestling? They really do it well at Stillwater at Oklahoma State University. And so she called the coach, got the name, called the coach, asked when were they practicing, and was there any chance she might could talk with some of his athletes about wrestling when they got through? She's writing a paper. The way she said it, I'm writing a paper. need to know. He said that'd be fine. So she got there. Guys had worked out, had their shower, redressed, were coming out, and she said to this little group of wrestlers, I'm writing a paper on wrestling, and I was reading a story about two guys who wrestled all night long. And one young man said, no way. No way, he said. This is one of the most intense sports there is. I mean, three minutes can seem like three hours. Nobody wrestles all night. She said, that's what the story said. Well, he said, then both of them were hanging on for dear life. She said, and I read one of them had his hip dislocated. No way, he said. I've seen fingers. I've even seen elbows. I've seen shoulders. Never a hip. She said, that's what I read. And he said, if that be true, then one of them was wrestling way out of his class. 